Open your Bible to two places, if you will, with me. The book of Mark, where I am now preaching through the entire uh, gospel of Mark. Not every verse, but we're going through it sequentially. Mark chapter 6 in your Bible. Turn there. And as soon as you find it, please turn back to the book of Matthew, the neighboring book, because there's a parallel account of the same uh, scene in the book of, of Matthew. And I would like to point out a couple of things from Matthew that Mark's account does not include. So we'll use both passages. Mark chapter 6 in your Bible, and then Matthew chapter 11. And as soon as you get there, look up this way, and I will know that you have arrived, okay? Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter number 11. My subject today is the martyrdom of John the Baptist, the martyrdom or the murder, if you will, of John the Baptist. I've already preached one message on John the Baptist, and now today I'd like to deal with the end of his life, his murder or his martyrdom, if you will. I am a Baptist. Baptists don't have patron saints. But if they did, I'd nominate John the Baptist. I know who would be my patron saint if we had them. I don't know what it means to you to be a Baptist. Not much in the case of too many people who live in South Carolina. South Carolina has more Baptists than we have population. South Carolina is fuller of Baptists than it is of ticks. I'll tell you that. And that's not good grammar, but it's the truth, isn't it? Somebody, and it's like that across the South. We call it the Bible Belt. And there are millions of Baptists who live in our part of the world. Very common, the most common religious group. Out in Mississippi, a preacher was going door to door out in the country knocking on doors and uh, he was doing a little religious survey. He knocked on a door and he said to the people who opened, the man who opened the door, are y'all Baptist? And the fellow says, yes, sir. Everybody around here is a Baptist except them that have been messed with. And so uh, you haven't been messed with here today. You're still a Baptist. And that's the most common group of people, of course, in our part of the world. But today, I'd like to talk to you about the first Baptist. Nobody could question that. The very first Baptist. His name, of course, was John. And I'll tell you just a few things about him before we read our scripture together. First, remember that he had a miraculous birth. It was not a virgin birth like the birth of his first cousin, the Lord, or his second cousin, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was a miraculous birth. His mother and father were both well past childbearing years when John uh, came along. He was honored to be the first person to introduce Jesus Christ to the world. And you remember when at one day when he was baptizing and the Lord Jesus Christ approached, John pointed no doubt to him, and then these words came from his mouth, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very first words he ever uttered were a brief 
encapsulated statement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a humble man. He said about the Lord, he must increase, but I must decrease. And one day, talking about his Savior, he said, I am not worthy to stoop down and to unlatch his sandal or his shoe. He was a man of great and deep humility. And Christ was the center of his life, as we're going to see. His message was a very simple message, one that I wish that more Baptists would preach. His message was repent, change your mind about yourself, because you are helplessly lost. Change your mind about your sin, because it will separate you from God for all of eternity. Repent, change your mind about yourself, change your mind about your sin, and change your mind about the Savior. Look to Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way of salvation than through Him. And so turn to the Lamb of God who will pay for the sins of the world, including yours. Then after he preached that message, he gave an altar call. It says that people came to him, and they came requesting baptism. And when they did, he went actually to preach his messages beside a river, a place called Anan in the south of Israel, because there was much water in that place, meaning he needed enough water to be able to immerse people. And so they would come, and there they would go down into the water, and he would immerse them, picturing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every time a person is baptized, we give a picture, a type, if you will, of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so John baptized the people there. It says about Jesus, and when he was baptized, he came up out of the water, meaning he had to be in the water, covered up by the water, buried in the water. He was immersed, and then he came up out of the water in the river. John was the first one that we know that practiced what we would call today Christian baptism. Now, you read some of the commentators who are not Baptists, and they will say, well, John's baptism was not Christian baptism, and uh, it was Christian baptism. He baptized every one of Christ's disciples, and there was no record that they were ever rebaptized. Also, we know that his baptism was accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It would have been folly for Christ to be baptized in anything else but a baptism that would bear his own name. And then later, after a brief ministry of probably, we estimate, two or three years, John was murdered. He became the very first Christian martyr, a Christian martyr. The first person, not, we usually hear Stephen, but actually it was John. The first person who gave his life in defense of his faith rather than deny the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, John here gave his life as a martyr. And some people are great in their own eyes. Some people are great in the eyes of other people, but John was great in the sight of Jesus Christ. Do you know what Jesus said about him? Look in your Bible, Matthew chapter 11, where I ask you to turn. Talk about a compliment. Talk about honor. Talk about a meaningful statement. 
chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 11. Here's Jesus' summation and evaluation of this man, John, the first Baptist, the first martyr. Verse 11, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now, when Jesus says there's never been anybody greater than you, I'll tell you what, that's something to remember. That is a plaque to put on your wall forever, is it not? There's never been a greater man born among women than this man, John the Baptist. Now, I'm going to read from Mark, and here we stand in reverence to God's Word. Would you stand with me as we read the text for the day? And I've put it down in the message rather than at the very beginning. Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to begin in verse 14. Follow with me in your Bible, please. And King Herod heard of him, meaning Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias or Elijah. And others said that it is a prophet or one of the prophets. But when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He's risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. And John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias had a quarrel against John and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John. Isn't that strange? The man sitting on the throne fears the Baptist preacher. Strange circumstance. Herod feared John, knowing he was a just man and a holy man. And he observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. That phrase, he did many things, he was much perplexed. He couldn't get, get decided on exactly what to do. And so he heard John gladly. And a convenient day was come, and Herod, on his birthday, made a supper to his lords, his high captains, his chief estates, the nobles of his kingdom. And when the daughter of the said Herodias, his wife, came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it to you. And he spake unto her, Whatsoever you will ask of me, I will give it to you, even unto the half of my kingdom. Well, she went forth and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And Herodias, her mother, and Herod's wife said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway, or quickly, with haste unto the king, and asked, saying, I will that you give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. The king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded John in the prison and brought his head and a charger on a plate and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. You may be seated.
the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Verse 16, the news here came of Jesus' ministry to Herod. And Herod didn't know about Jesus, apparently. And he said, oh, this is not Jesus, this new preacher. This is John the Baptist who I beheaded, and he's come back to life. And he was afraid when he heard the news about this. So we hear the story here in Mark 6 at the end after John has already been beheaded. Now, there's a lot of detail about this story that's not in the Bible, but that we have a record of it. There was a very famous Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a historian, and he's well regarded as probably the most accurate historian of that point in time, both for the Jewish history and also for the Roman history. And Josephus wrote in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews. There's the book, because I looked it up. You can find it even on the internet and read it for yourself. He tells the story of the Herod family, the Herod family. There was a whole bunch of these Herods. I mean, the father was Herod the Great. He was the king when Jesus was born. He was the king who killed all the little babies that were born at that time. But he died soon after. And he had four sons or five sons, I believe. And so this Herod that you read about here now, his son becomes the king of the Jews, the king of Judea, if you will. The story of the Herod family is written in blood. They were wicked people. They were brutal people. There is scandal and blood in the whole family as far out on the family tree as you want to go. Well, this Herod here that the story is about who killed John the Baptist, this Herod had a brother named Philip who lived up in Rome. He went to visit his brother, so Josephus says. And while visiting his brother, he seduced his wife. Nice brother, huh? He seduced his wife, and he took her back with him down to Israel to his palace. He was already married to a woman who was the daughter of the king of Arabia at that time. When she had Herodias move into the palace, she got out of town. She left and went back to Papa. And when she went back to Papa, the king of the Arabians, he became incensed, got his army together, and attacked Herod and his army over in Israel and would have wiped them out. He had the power to wipe them out. The problem was is that the, uh, the Roman legions came in and sort of uh, defended Herod, so uh, the plan didn't materialize. And so here we have Herod living with his brother's wife. He calls him that in verse 17, which I guess he later married her. And so we have this bloody history of this Herod family. Look in verse number 18. In spite of that, John the Baptist went before him, and apparently one day he preached a sermon to him about adultery and immorality. And John said, Herod, it is not lawful. It's not right for you to have your brother's wife. Man, what a preacher. And interestingly, Herod didn't take it as personally, maybe as he should have. Verse 20, he feared John, the king fearing a preacher. Why would he do that? Because of his conscience, because he knew that John was a just man, holy, 
And Herod had been watching him, and he heard him gladly, it said. Isn't that strange? A strange turn of events here. And so Herod apparently even liked John the Baptist. He admired him. He respected the Baptist preacher here. But his wife hated him. She loathed him, and she was one cruel woman. She was a schemer. She was full of hatred. She was plotting his death. Apparently, she got so involved in this situation that she finally talked Herod into arresting John the Baptist and putting him in prison. We think John was in prison for about a year, the only research that we can do would reveal. And so John is in the prison. Herod and Herodias had a summer palace. The name of it was Machaerus. And they went there in the summertime, and John the Baptist was put in the dungeon of that very palace. You can see the ruins of it even today over in the Holy Land. And so Herod was trying to appease Herodias, but wasn't working out very well. She was plotting his death. And so one day, Herod had a birthday party. Now, you and I as Christians sitting here in this church have a hard time understanding how unbelievably wicked these pagan kings were. His birthday party was a stag party. Most of those kings openly consorted with prostitutes and were as immoral as human imagination could allow them to be. So he invited all these nobles in, all the high officials of his kingdom, the people that he worked with. And he had this birthday party, but it was a drunken orgy. Lots of booze, lots of nakedness, lots of women of ill repute, no doubt. That was the custom. On this day, part of the entertainment was Herodias' daughter. Her name was Salome, or some people call her Salome, whichever you wish. Salome was probably a teenage, upper teenage girl, maybe early 20s, the daughter of his wife by a previous marriage. And so Salome comes into this drunken stag party, this orgy, if you will, and she dances. She dances before these men. She's beautiful. She's sensuous and seductive and sexy. She no doubt was probably mostly naked and danced a lewd dance, think strip club dancing. This is what she's doing that day at the birthday party before these drunken, lecherous, leering, old, dirty men. And she's dancing this vile dance. Boy, what a perfect place to lose your soul. The alcohol is flowing. The music is pulsating. The passions are inflamed. The morals are lowered. Restraints are gone. How do I illustrate it? Oh, spring break. (laughs) South Carolina. Myrtle Beach, next week. Perfect place to lose your soul and your virtue and your reputation, if that means anything. Sean Hannity had an investigative journalist come in and 
I think it'll be on tonight again at 9 o'clock. Some of it's so lewd you can't watch it. And it's about spring break. Even the public officials now are warning it's not only wicked, it's dangerous. You may want to watch it tonight. Don't let your little kids see it. So Herod's in this vile party, wicked, drunk, lewdness everywhere. And he gets caught up in the moment, apparently, I would say, controlled by his lust and by his pride. He promised this little girl anything you want, up to half of the kingdom. She says, oh, come on, you don't mean that. Yes, I do. I'll give you anything up to half of the kingdom. And she says, okay. She goes to see her mother. And she comes back and she said, I want that head of that Baptist preacher on one of those big platters that they're serving all this food on tonight. What? You can't do that. I didn't mean that. No, you said anything, Herod, up to one half of the kingdom. And there he is trapped by promises that he's made in front of all of his officials. His pride and vanity on the line would not allow him to back up. And he says to the executioner, go give her what she wants. An unknown poet described the whole thing so succinctly. She danced for the king, that dear little thing, with bare neck and arms and all her soft charm. She pleased the great king, the cute little thing. There were ladies fine, noblemen and wine. Whate'er your behest, I'll grant your request. In haste swore the king to the sweet little thing. Her eyes opened wide. She planned on the side. Mama in the lead on a gift they agreed to ask of the king for a nice little thing. John the Baptist's head, now bring me, she said. She spoke it out loud in front of the crowd. While pale grew the king, that mean little thing, the monarch was dazed. He was shocked and amazed. His face wore a cloud with grief, his head bowed. She had won from the king, that sly little thing. And the mirth had all died. What would he decide? Then slowly he said, Bring hither the head for the oath of a king, that wicked little thing. That's the story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Now, in Matthew chapter 14, you need not turn there. There's a clause that describes after his death, it said that his disciples, remember John the Baptist had disciples. In fact, every one of Jesus' disciples had formerly been a disciple of John the Baptist. And so his disciples came, and it says in Matthew 14 and 12, they took up the body, they buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Can't you imagine the grief that the Lord Jesus Christ felt that day? John was his first cousin. John was the man who had introduced him. John was a holy and just man. Even the king said that. John was filled with the Holy Ghost from the, birth, from the moment of his birth, even before his birth. John the Baptist was the man that Jesus had said, there's never been a man 
greater born than John the Baptist. And news comes that he has not only been martyred, but cruelly so. Somebody took a knife and cut his head off. A bloody, horrible, violent, terrible way to die. And they came and told Jesus. I know that Jesus wept that day. And I know that grief came upon his apostles. I'm sure there was silence and prayer and tears. I'd like to make a couple of applications real quick. What I see in this story is this. Here we have a Baptist who spoke truth to power. Here we have a Baptist who was not afraid of a public official and who went and stood right in front of him and said, King, what you're doing is wrong. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. A Baptist preacher, the first Baptist preacher, and he had the courage and the convictions to speak truth to power. Boy, what a lesson for Baptist people today. I talked to you early in the message about we're Baptists and what it means. Today, listen to me. Our culture has so totally and completely capitulated to wickedness, to the acceptance of evil, even beyond evil, degradation and debauchery. We've accepted it as a culture today. Don't you know we could make a great difference in America if just the Baptist, and there's millions of other people who love the Lord as well, but if God's people would stand up for decency once more in the face of the evil and wicked tidal wave that's sweeping over our country today. When are we going to break our silence and be the people of God? Here's a man that said, I don't care if he's the king, it's still wrong. It doesn't matter if everybody does it, it's still wrong. It doesn't matter if the king does it. It's wrong. Right is right, and wrong is wrong. God's word is true, and he went and looked old Herod right in the face, and he said, Herod, what you're doing is wrong. He spoke the truth to power. Do you know it will break your heart if you will read and do some research and study? Do you realize this morning that around the world, there are millions of people that are decent people, Moral people, good people, Christian people, some of them not even Christian people, but just people with family values, people who, who, who want a decent and ordered society. And do you realize today that over there across the sea, they're looking at us and they're laughing at us, but it's a laughter of sadness? Do you realize they're calling America Sodom and Gomorrah on the other side of the Atlantic? They're referring to us as Sodom and Gomorrah this morning. And we have capitulated. We're not even talking about it. It's like, well, there's nothing we can do. Well, there's not anything one of us can do. But if God's people would be the salt and be the light and stand for common decency, we could turn back the flood of evil that is overwhelming our our world today. 
corrupt leaders, Democrat and Republican. Neither side is setting the example for us. Sexual promiscuity, casual sex, abortion, 56 million babies aborted in this country in the last 42 or three years. Drunkenness epidemic, destroying our youth, boring out their insides, their moral convictions and values. Drugs. Colorado and Washington State have already legalized it. Don't give me those inane arguments. Listen, we're going to become a nation of potheads. We're not going to have enough ambition to get up off the floor if this thing continues as as it is. Homosexuality, being accepted by the majority, particularly of our young people. What God calls an abomination over and over and acceptable in our culture this morning. Same-sex relationships, I won't call that marriage. That's not marriage. It takes a man and a woman to have a marriage. An upside-down world. Hollywood's values accepted even in the church. God help us. I want to play a little game with you. Now, don't give this away until I tell you up there in the sound booth or up there in the video booth. I want to do a little thing. I want you to guess who said this. Because this week, a world leader, a world leader, made this statement in a speech, and I'll quote it to you slowly. Quote, many Euro-Atlantic countries, he means by that America and European countries, have moved away from their roots, including their Christian values. Many American and European countries have moved away from their roots, including their Christian values. Policies are being pursued that place on the same level, same level now, get that, A traditional family, mother and dad and children, and a same-sex partnership. But now our country is viewing those as being morally equivalent. They're the same. Faith in God and faith in Satan. You can worship God and you can worship Satan. won't matter officially in the country today. And the leader said this is the path to degradation. And he spoke down about our country and its morality. Who do you think that leader was? Was that Barack Obama or Harry Reid or, or, or John Boehner or whomever? Now, let me show you his picture. Now, I'm not, making it, I'm not an apologist for Putin. I'm going to tell you that. But here's a guy ridiculing the immorality of this country, and obviously he's hypocritical because he's in, while he's doing that, he's invading another country. He's a former KGB director. But the point is, even he can see in his mind the direction and the degradation of our society where we take a beautiful little nuclear family, a mama, a daddy, a couple little children, and we put it on the same level with a same-sex partnership somewhere. And he says, this is the path to degradation. I don't don't like being lectured to by Vladimir Putin. 
But I have to admit that there's a kernel of truth in what he said. I don't know if you've read the news over the weekend or not. In China, there's a a big city over near Shanghai. has 7 million people in it. The the people there built a church, a beautiful church building. cost two or three million dollars, which is you can build a lot in China for two or three million American dollars. And these people gathered together. It's one of the three self-officially approved churches. It's a beautiful building. It would look like our property here. And these, it's a large congregation, six, seven hundred people. And the government wrote on the side of it in red paint, this building is unsafe and we're going to bulldoze it down just about the time they moved in. Brand new building, the government says it's unsafe. They're trying to get rid of it, so they're just going to tear it down. You know what the members did? The members went into the building and formed a human shield around it and inside of it. People have been sleeping on the pews in that building now for several weeks. People are saying, if you bulldoze it down, you'll bulldoze it down on top of us. An 81-year-old woman, they quote her in the article, and this dear Christian lady said, they can have my head, but they can't take away my happiness, and I'm going to die protecting my church. Boy, what, doesn't that inspire? I mean, that's, that's noble, isn't it? They can have my head and reminded me of John the Baptist because my head is not key to my, success, to my happiness in life because if they, if they push this building down on me, I'll be with the Lord and I'll be happy for all of eternity. And here we have these people They understand commitment. They understand what it means to speak the truth to power that could destroy them at any moment if it it wished. And yet they trust in God and pray for his protection. And these are people of convictions. This is what I call serious Christianity. Serious Christianity. Not the Christianity that's compatible with and comfortable with the culture, but the Christianity that stands up and looks the culture in the face and says, no, what's happening is wrong. And we don't have to live, but we have to be true to our Lord. A Baptist who spoke truth to power. You say, but I'm not a Baptist preacher and I don't ever get to stand in front of kings and give my testimony. If it were that important, I would. But that's not what the Lord asked us to do. He said, I want you to be salt and light. Salt, a few little grains that savor a whole plate full of food. Light, one little match that would light this whole building if it were engulfed in darkness. I want you to have influence where you are in your workplace. Will you speak the truth to power? In your neighborhood, will you speak truth to power? With your friends, will you speak truth? Speak it lovingly, but will you speak it? If you don't, We're going to be overwhelmed, and it's not going to be long before we're overwhelmed. It's coming in like a tsunami.
Every day we reach new levels of debauchery and degradation in our country. Will you be a serious Christian? The first Baptist, John, gave his life in speaking truth to the powers of the day. Oh, that we would emulate that and remember that's what it means. The second thing I would say to you very quickly is, in John I see the difference in doubt and unbelief. I've preached a message on this previously in years gone by, maybe twice. It's such a powerful thought. But turn back with me again to Matthew chapter 11. Here's John locked up down here at Machaerus, this summer palace. He's in a dungeon. They say it was an awful place. Chained to the wall, no doubt. Rats running around on the floor. No decent food, if any. Starving, hungry, lonely. His mind going, what are they going to do to me? And somehow in all of that, is it possible that doubt slipped into the mind of this man? I don't know that it's true. If you read the commentaries, every commentator I've ever read said that, well, John went through this period of doubt. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. There's a different explanation for that. Maybe he wanted to send his apostles so they would begin to follow Christ and not him, knowing the end was near. But at any rate, in verse 2 of chapter 11, when John heard in the prison the works of Christ, what Christ was doing, he sent two of his disciples to say unto Jesus, art thou he that should come or should we look for another? In other words, he said, are you really the Messiah? Are you truly the one spoken about in the Old Testament that's going to be the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel? And from his cell, he sent out that word. Are you sure, are you, Jesus, are you the one that I'm looking for? You see, he was expecting Jesus to set up a kingdom and to be a king. And you know what Jesus did? Instead of Jesus directly responding to him, to those disciples, what Jesus said to them in verse number four, he said, I want you to go back and show John what you have been seeing with your own eyes, how that I have given sight to the blind, I've raised the dead, I've healed the lepers, I've helped people with all these different problems that they have. Go back and just simply tell John what you've seen. Give him the evidence that I am, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. <clears throat> now, what John didn't seem to have, what he seemed to have maybe gotten confused about was that the Lord Jesus, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to do wonderful works. But secondly, he was going to die for the sins of the world. And then the Messiah would set up his kingdom. Now, it's been a long gap in here between the two. But today, John is doubting a little bit. He's questioning. He's wondering, have I got this right? He's confused. And so what does he say? Are you the one? And Jesus sends back the evidence to him. Let me tell you one thing. Please listen to me. Now look here and get this. There is a difference in doubt that comes in difficult times. It flicks across your mind momentarily and briefly. And you question, am I in the will of God? Is God leading? Is this, am I right on what I think? 
There's a difference in that and unbelief, which unbelief just sets its jaw and says, look, don't confuse me with the facts. I don't care what you say. I'm not going to believe. That's unbelief. All of us at times have had unbelief or doubt in our minds. Fight unbelief. And when you doubt, you go back to the cross and you go back to the gospel and you remember the one who loved you and died for your sins and who will never forsake you. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.